September is Suicide Awareness and Prevention Month, and in today's episode there is a mention of death by suicide. To everyone who has been affected by the death of a friend, family member, or loved one, we honor their life, their memory, and your loss. At the end of today's episode, I'll provide information about the National Alliance on Mental Illness and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, two resources for suicide prevention and mental health. Today's episode is dedicated to Ashley McCall. We honor your memory and your life. Always remembered and forever loved. Welcome back to LPD Cast. I'm your host, Eloy Garcia. And today's guest is our dear friend, Brian Mapenzi. He is the Soul Space Program Manager at OnTrack Program Resources. And in addition to his work at OnTrack, Brian is a writer and a mental health advocate. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for being here. Thank you, man. Always a pleasure. To begin, could you talk to us about your current role at OnTrack Program Resources? What does that entail? Absolutely. So as the program manager, I oversee the grants, the day-to-day operations in regards to our case managers, or we like to call them empowerment advocates, because case management is such a, sometimes it gets a negative connotation. So we really want to be able to empower the folks that we work with, which is not exclusively, but primarily Black and African-American folks in Sacramento County. That's initially how our organization was started in 1997, just trying to provide resources and supports for folks. We help people find housing. We send mental health referrals for people who are coming in and just you know don't know where to turn, specifically focus on finding them therapists that often look like them and have the same cultural experience. So you have that initial connection coming in because a lot of times for people, a barrier to access is just feeling like they're going to be misunderstood, mislabeled, you know, et cetera, right? In regards to like racism and oppression, right? We get enough of that in the outside world. You don't want to go to somebody for help and then you get that same thing replicated that happens to you on a day-to-day basis. So my goal is to kind of make sure that I'm managing all of that uh, along with working with our empowerment advocates to provide the best help and support that we can for the folks in the community. Thank you, Brian. It sounds like there's a certain level of cultural competency that is required for this job. Is that a fair assessment? That is a very fair assessment. I think that one thing that, you know, I learned uh, more and more I work in like my profession is that just because someone looks like you doesn't automatically mean they're going to have the same experience and that they're going to understand you. And I think cultural humility is key to having cultural competence, understanding like, hey, this person might not have the same experience, right? But there can be some shared experiences. So being able to see somebody and see like we have shared experience, but not overgeneralize their experience either, where again, you're replicating the same oppressive and biased opinions that are formed about those individuals, whatever their identity may be. And why did you decide to work at OnTrack Program Resources? What about your journey brought you to this space? That's a phenomenal question. So I've been out of grad school since July of 2017, and all of my work prior had been centered on youth and mentorship and working with black and brown youth. However, I think mentally I saw this as the next step in my professional career because it gives me a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more opportunity for a leadership role as I'm manifesting being a, an executive director or a CEO for a nonprofit ideally within the next three to five years. So this has given me the opportunity to do grant management work. Uh, I recently helped write a federal grant with my executive director in April. So 
give me a lot more experience in that realm. And I think it'll help push me um, in the right direction as I strive to be executive director. That's a big deal. I haven't done it, but I've heard grant writing can be quite an experience. <laughs> can you talk to us about what that was like for you? Uh, tedious, I would say that <laughs> for sure, especially for federal grants, which require an abundant amount of things to go into them first and foremost, and then the things that federal grants usually require in regards to meeting the things that you said you were going to meet in the proposal, uh, it, it's very robust. And it's very different than the writing I'm used to doing. I'm used to doing creative writing, talking about like social justice related things or different aspects in the holistic wellness sphere. Totally different in regards to grant writing. So it is a it's definitely a unique experience. It's definitely something that has been challenging up to this point, but it's something that I'm embracing head on and working on with uh, my executive director just for like more guidance and figuring out how to speak the language of who you're writing the grant for. Did it take you back to your grad school days? Yes, and actually they <laughs> hate academic writing with the fact. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a creative writer, it's like you're saying it's on the other side of the spectrum, right? Yeah, it feels like it. In the same breath, though, I realize like you have to be creative, like some of the language you use. Like I love just connecting words together and like painting a story. So I think that's the thing that has helped me like embrace it more. And like, you know, it may not be the creative writing you're used to, right? But there are avenues and ways in order for you to be creative, in order for you to like share like your voice, but also just telling the story of like the great work that we do do. Now, speaking of your writing, I enjoy it very much. And you have several articles on LinkedIn, such as Use Sleep as Your Superpower, Necessity of Emotional Wellness, Intuition is a Road to Our Subconscious Mind, and Pain Plus Reflection Equal Progress. Can you talk to us about how you were introduced to writing and why you decided to start to write? Yeah, most definitely. I think that for a very long time, I've been interested in poetry and I write poetry like just things would come up. Let's say I'm in the shower. For some reason, that's the spot that I get all of my good thoughts. And then I have to write it on the, on the door before it stings away and keep it in my head. Um, but I think I've always enjoyed writing poetry. And it was just something you know I did for myself. I didn't really share it with people. But the pandemic gave me an opportunity once I started working from home to have more time to in the mornings to do that. I would go on walks by 5 a.m., still dark out. And uh, it would just be complete silence for the most part. And it really just gave me the opportunity to gain more clarity, which helped me unpack a lot of the mental baggage that I was holding on to. And I guess for a while, I told myself that I really wasn't creative or there were things that were in my way, uh, allowing me not to really dive into that as much. But like I said, the pandemic allowed me to really, really give that a go. And I started blog writing. Uh, I would wake up every morning and just brainstorm on ideas or I would like I said I'm in the shower I think about idea like let me write this down before I forget and then I would just go to it after I would go on my walks because like I said I just started creating more clarity for myself unblocking some of the emotional and mental barriers that were stopping me from writing right and just I was a lot less busy because I didn't have to commute to work which was 45 minutes at the time one way so all those things really just kind of combined together to give me the opportunity to write but I love creative writing I love being able to paint a picture I love being able to tell a story and create a tangible picture for someone and for them to like be able to connect to it. I'll talk about this a little bit later, but connection and 
collaboration is one of the things that for me is really, really big in everything that I do. Thank you. I studied gender and sexuality in my undergrad as a minor. So I'm asking you this question through that filter. As a masculine person and a former athlete, did the way that we are socialized to process our emotions as masculine people, as people in male bodies, did that affect your, first of all, your idea that you aren't a creative person or weren't a creative person? And the second part to that is, did that influence how you processed what you were going through as far as mental and emotional health? Phenomenal question. I think at a conscious level, I, I never really thought about it in regards to the creativity thing, but I would be lying if I said it didn't play a role. I'm, I'm assuming that it did in some capacity to the point of dealing with things and, you know, pretending that everything's okay and feeling like you have to take everything in the world and put it on your back. It certainly affected me. Uh, I was very, very good at like repressing things and not dealing with them head on because I felt like I couldn't be quote unquote emotional, whatever that means, right? But I'm a human being, just like every other person walking this earth and humans have emotions. Uh, humans have thoughts, we have feelings, like all of these things are natural. And anytime you try to nix something that is natural, you're going to be in a pretty complicated situation. And I think that I did that for so long that it just got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. It was starting to cause pain, not just to myself, but other people around me. So I think grad school really helped open my eyes in a ton of ways, right? You know, going through like my master's program and counseling, uh, it wasn't just to help other people. It was like, oh snap, like I really need to do this for myself as well too. So it was just kind of a perfect storm of things that happened in my life at the time that really gave me the opportunity to dive into what needed to be dove into. Thank you, Brian. You know, that's really powerful what you're talking about. Once we get to a certain point after repressing our emotions or what we're going through for so long, it starts to cause physical pain. Mm. It sounds like grad school helped to illuminate some new ways to deal with your stress. But what about grad school helped to illuminate that for you? Because it seems like sometimes the stress of something like grad school can maybe break the person versus open them up to trying to do things differently. So what about your experience in grad school led you to open up versus having a breakdown? Uh, I think it was it was actually tragedy more than anything. I lost my sister to suicide it was the summer in between my first and second year so that was like uh the gut punch of all gut punches it was a hard summer for that reason and I explicitly remember like three black men also being murdered on camera like by the police you know how we see the videos it always resurfaces it was like three that summer and I was just like not in a good place by any means uh, and I felt like I didn't have that many people to turn to not only because I was nine hours away from my family but there were so many people on my program who I just felt like just didn't get it. it was maybe one or two who I could talk to on a regular basis so I had nowhere to put all of the emotions I didn't want to deal with anymore it was like oh wow okay uh you either have to deal with this or you're gonna have a mental breakdown and even once I started it it was just like it was so much like all the time that that semester the fall semester after I think I missed maybe 10 or 15 days of class and like 
my professors were super understanding. Like I eventually told them like what happened. They were understanding, you know, I ended up making up the work that I needed to make up, got everything done. They were just really understanding. Um, and I needed that more than anything at the time. So being able to do that. And I started going to therapy for the first time ever. My first therapist was through school and usually always a limited amount of sessions. So I felt like it honestly went nowhere for five weeks, but then I went out to the community and met a therapist who was exceptional and uh, she really helped me start on my healing journey. Thank you for being so candid about your experience and so open about your life. I think it shows immense courage and gratitude and also humility and experience. Something that I've learned is when we share our stories, we help others heal. So you being so candid with us and sharing your story with us is going to help so many people heal. So thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, thank you. So the articles you write and what you just shared with us are a really good segue into our conversation about these pillars of holistic health. How did you choose these themes for today's conversation and for the focus of your life? You know, I guess sitting doing my brainstorming like for writing, I, you know, I usually get prepared, get into a quiet place, I meditate, you know, or like I said, things come up in the shower as well too. I realize what space I need to get in in order to write and be effective in the time I have, whether it's five minutes or 55 minutes. I think for me, I've always thought of it like in the sense that, you know, people use the buzzwords generational wealth now, and that's a huge thing that is talked about. And I think it's good um, in a lot of senses, but it's usually talked about just from a financial standpoint. And I think wealth is way more than just how much your net worth is. I think wealth pertains to a lot of different things. One thing that I think is important is just having healthy relationships with folks, you know, dealing with trauma, right? If you can pass on healed and healthy people, I think that's far more valuable than your net worth, right? Because there are plenty of people who are worth billions of dollars who are still dealing with trauma and having that pain that was caused to them and passing it out into the world on other people. So I would much rather be healed and happy and fulfilled. I get really wary by using the word happy because happiness is very fleeting. So I'll say fulfilled. And I think that's super crucial in order to live a life that's well lived, more so than a dollar sign. Not to say not okay to accumulate wealth, but I think you need to pass on more than just dollars to people. Could you talk to us about the importance of having a personal mission statement? Why is this an important practice for our listeners to adopt? Yes, yes. This is something that's very important to me and I think could be a catalyst for growth and pushing people in the right direction for themselves as well. Just because every day I wake up, even if I'm feeling bad, I, I can lean and fall back on something that I know is going to help me and move me forward. You know, and I, I should probably share exactly what my own personal mission statement is, and that's to compassionately cultivate others so that I can help them expand their worldview. And I think the thing with that is anytime you try to help other people, it's like, okay, how am I compassionately cultivating myself? How am I expanding my own worldview? And I think just to be cliche, uh, it definitely does start with the man in the mirror, like Michael Jackson said. 
Wise words. Effectively. Wise words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do all this other work that we want to do for other people uh, as effectively if we haven't done it ourselves. That's not to say we can't, right? But I think it's more effective when we're also doing the same thing, right? All the best teachers are still learning. All the best healers are still healing. Like I think that's very, very apropos for the situation. Wow, that's wonderful. In addition to the personal mission statement, I gotta make sure I say this as well too, is having core values. Um, I personally have five and I probably should narrow it down to three, but I couldn't when I was just thinking <laughs> about what are the things in my life that play a vital role into how I interact with others, how I navigate the world. So I'll go through those. So one is creativity. We obviously talked about that earlier, like with the writing and wordplay. Vitality, which is just like a zest and zeal for life, just like a energy about you. Like that's something that has always been me. And even when I was two years old, I was running around the house like crazy. Remember, uh, when I was two, asked me to go get the ketchup. And I somehow I came back with the ketchup. <laughs> running around the house. Another uh, is collaboration. As I mentioned, being with people and really uniting together and working towards a common goal, that is very, very important to me because I know there's so many people that helped me do that to get to where I am. Another is hope. I'm a very romantic person about like life and what I think things could be. Like I'm a huge dreamer. I'm a hopeless optimistic, but I don't have Pollyanna syndrome in a sense that I think that if my house is on fire, I think that everything's going to be okay if I don't do anything. I think that hope has to come with action as well too i think that faith has to come with works and i think it's important to just kind of keep that in mind too you know i'm hopeful because i am putting myself in the right spaces i'm talking to the right people i'm doing the right things as much as i possibly can within what i can control right now i'm always optimistic that no matter what the outcome will be good and good meaning even if something quote unquote bad happens like i learned a lesson there was something i was able to get out of it to move or like finding a silver lining lastly is humor there is very, very, very few days where I'm not laughing, making jokes, because, you know, you can't take yourself too seriously. Like, life is too short. We might find out tomorrow that we have a terminal illness, and all of the anger and anxiety that we had before that's just like, why? You know, a lot of times with anxiety, we realize the thing that we were really scared of that was going to happen isn't nowhere near as bad as we thought it was going to be. So really having that humor and sharing that with others, like, it's great to see people laugh and smile. You know, it's, it's just a little small piece that you can enjoy like that moment where you are. Thank you, Brian. And this is a big question. This next question is a big question. Um, what guidance do you have for our listeners that are focused on improving their mental health? Wow. <laughs> Very big question. I would say the first piece is just having self-awareness. Sometimes we do things like our behaviors manifest in ways that we have no idea why we're doing it right i always tell people when you get in the car and you're driving and road rage happens and you're yelling and cursing it probably wasn't the person that cut you off that was the reason that you're upset that's just a outward manifestation of how you're feeling inside about something else but most people aren't going to think about it like that it's just like that person cut me off so i'm pissed off like yes that's true it's not usually one thing like that that's gonna break the camel's back it's a residual of a lot of things that happen over time. So I think that self-awareness piece is absolutely critical, right? We can't solve a problem until we identify what it really is. So let's say somebody realizes like, man, I'm a lot more angry than I thought, or like, man, I'm a lot more depressed than I thought, or I have anxiety about 
you know, whatever it is that life's bringing to our sphere. Um, I think that self-awareness is really a building block in order to really start tackling mental health struggles. You just mentioned these moments of self-awareness that are so important. And I just want to ask you if you could provide maybe some insight, you being someone with a degree in counseling, what should we do when we have that realization of, I have more anger than I, than I thought I did. I'm more depressed than I realized. What's the next step? What do we do after that realization? One thing that has been helpful for me, I'm a huge advocate for therapy and not just therapy, finding a good therapist. My dad made a good example when I was first seeking therapy because my first therapist was not good. Um, he said, you know, when you go into the car dealership, unless you know exactly what you want, you usually don't just close your eyes and point and pick at something. You take your time, you figure out exactly what it is that's going to be helpful for you and go through the steps to be able to do that. The tough part about that is if somebody is really struggling, it's like, I just want a therapist so I can you know, offload whatever or so I can work through these things. So it is a little bit more tricky than obviously buying a car. However, the idea, I think the idea behind it is still valid and has merit for the simple fact of you don't want to just randomly pick somebody and be like, oh, I have a therapist now, things are going to be okay. Not necessarily the case. I think finding a good therapist and a good fit, a lot of times um, finding somebody who is really going to understand you. It's like, do I need to process things or do I really need somebody who's going to give me goals, going to give me homework, help me work through these things in a really pragmatic type of way like, like for me personally I need somebody who's going to help me process because um, I'm very I've intellectualized things too much I always try and solve them with my head and most of the matters of the heart can't be solved with the head um, so I think that's where um, that's where people can really go in the right direction or the wrong direction thank you for that insight you know we were talking earlier about how complicated it could be to find that fit with a therapist. So while we encourage and we advocate for therapy here on LPDCast, we also want to encourage our listeners that may just be starting therapy or may be having that complication and finding the right therapist to continue to search. Uh, please don't give up. Um, there is that therapist out there for you that will connect with you and to you in the way that works. So. If you've seen one or two or even three or four, just please continue um, continue the search. There are so many people out there that are looking for you and you are looking for them. And I believe that you all will find each other. Let's say maybe somebody isn't quite ready for therapy, but they are ready to really do something. Another thing I think that's been helpful for me is getting connected to like my cultural roots, whether it's African proverbs or what have you. Uh, this word Sankofa really sticks out to me. And it basically means looking back at the past and grabbing that which is useful. I actually usually wear a necklace with a Sankofa bird on it. It's kind of a mythical thing for the reason I don't have it on today. So I just get to talk about it. So looking back and grabbing that which is useful. I think that is huge in regards to working through things because a lot of the stress and trauma and issues that we have uh, and strife is because of past stuff, right? So how do we look back at that and say, man, like I had a very hypercritical parent, like that was rough, that was tough. Like I had a hard time and it's okay that that happened. What can I take from that 
to use in my present so that I can have better and more healed future. Thank you, Brian, for mentioning that. I completely agree. Having a connection to your cultural background and ancestral knowledge will ground you so much in your experience and give you so many tools, can provide so many tools for you that oftentimes we are disconnected from or just unaware of for a number of reasons. So I completely agree. Search how you and your culture live and dealt with life. You will learn so much that I think is encouraging. While we are encouraging our listeners to engage with therapy and engage with these ideas of processing our stressors in a, in a new way or in a different way, especially if they've been detrimental to our relationships or to our life, it's important to mention that black and brown communities can develop baggage around concepts like mental health and therapy, particularly for men, like we've mentioned in this conversation. Can you provide insight for our listeners on how to overcome these specific feelings about baggage and mental health and therapy? Definitely. There's been millions, I'm sure, at this point of articles and research data that shows that in order to be successful, on a large scale, we have to have a social support system. You have to. Nobody can do it alone. You know, the whole term self-made millionaire makes me upset because nobody did anything by themselves. I'm like, ah. Uh, so much. It's so <laughs> misleading. Kills me. It's Every such time. a lie. No, and that comes back to that collaboration piece I talked about earlier in regards to core values. We all need each other to work in this machine that is life. There's so many situations that happen where somebody needed help and, hey, I have a friend that does so-and-so, right? I can connect you to so-and-so. Everybody needs somebody for something, right? Um, whether that's love or affection or support, your social support system is what makes you or breaks you. Most of the folks that we work with at my job, like the hardest part is not dealing with the world, Obviously, that's hard, but when you don't have people supporting you and trying to incorporate these new healthy behaviors, it's so easy to fall back into things that might be toxic for you, or things that might be difficult and frustrating. Specifically speaking to like men and dealing with those emotions and not wanting the world to see, you gotta, like I said, find that social support system and find those opportunities to dig down deep when things seem hopeless really uh, I've been in those positions I've been in situations where I feel like I don't want to be here anymore and when you can lean on somebody even if it's just one or two people right when you can lean on them I have like three or four black men and brown men that I can call and talk when I'm really feeling like down and for a while I, I didn't have that because we all talk to each other in a certain type of way often uh and we put on this mask. It's like, hey, we talk about sports or we talk about, from a heteronormative standpoint, we talk about women and we do all these things. And it's this game. It's this game. It's, it's so fake and inauthentic. It's like, how am I really helping them? And how am I really being a friend? Like, you know, if somebody hurts themselves or somebody says something and we don't, we're like, oh, I never saw that coming. It's like, man, like you've been with them for 10, 15 years. You know, like we got to take the mask off. We have to, you know, and I, I think, it doesn't just apply to men, of course. It applies to a lot of black and brown folks. A lot of people have been oppressed and marginalized. We have to put on a mask in order to do this figurative dance in order to be accepted. And it's stressful on our mental health. It really is. Um, 
we have to slowly unveil the mask and really be our authentic selves because that's what really allows us to heal both our ancestors and ourselves. It sounds like healing is a group effort. Absolutely. Just like many other things. Um, I don't think that we can go this road alone. It, it would be impossible and too much burden to carry for one person. Nor should we go about it alone, right? Correct. <laughs> you are absolutely right. As we move on to the third pillar of holistic wellness, we've had previous conversations about the importance of leisure and play for black and brown communities. Could you expand on that thought for us, please? Yes, yes. I think from a historical context, many folks I know who are black and brown didn't have the luxury to play. It was always like, I have to work in order to survive and provide for the family. Play was a myth. Play was something so far off that people with money who didn't look like them had and was able to do, right? I think that this idea of play though, like as we move into further into the 21st century, I think for black and brown folks, there is no better time to have been alive in the history of America specifically. And some people may scoff at that, right? But there are so many opportunities for us compared to let's say even 50 or 60 years ago, snow contest. Clearly things are still difficult. There's still oppression. There's still systemic things that go on. That would be uh, naive and crass of me to say that that was not the case. But I would never want to be, if I wanted to be successful as a person of color, there's no other time I think you could do that more than now. So that means we I have more opportunities to play, right? Play has been shown through data too, to be able to help people find those creative juices, right? When we play, like even as adults, I was talking to somebody the other day about adult playgrounds. Like, wouldn't that be cool if we were able to just do that? That sounds amazing. (laughs) It gives you the opportunity to not always have this structure, right? I wake up, I take a shower, I eat breakfast, I put on my clothes, I go to work, I drive, I commute, I park, I go into work. I know I got all this stuff to do. It's always this very rigid, very structured stuff. But when we can step outside of that, right? That's why vacation is so important. Sometimes it's unstructured and it gives us the opportunity to get away from the monotony of the day-to-day, you know? So having the opportunity to do that, have that leisure uh, and play, it really gives us an opportunity to be more creative. Every human being is creative, whether they can write a novel or they can draw or do whatever, right? We have creative juices flowing through our body, but oftentimes as you become an adult, they've been stamped out because now you have to go into the real world. You have to get a big person's job. You know, you have to leave their dreams behind you. And I don't believe in that at all. I am going to keep my dreams flowing until I'm no longer here because that's what motivates people and gives them purpose. You know, nobody just wants to work forever. I mean, maybe some people do, but that's not the life that I see for myself or other people who I think really would give them again, purpose and passion about the things that they're doing. I want to ask you some questions about leadership. What is your philosophy on leadership and how do you live out that philosophy? I would say for me, not expecting people to do things just because you said it. (laughs) A lot of times leaders wield with a strong hand, if you will, and it's just my way or the highway. And I've learned as a manager and as a coach for other people, when you really dig deep and figure out like what makes people tick and like what are things that they really care about, people will run through a brick wall for you. And if I had to pick my leadership style, it would be transformational. Like I love talking about existential things like the bigger picture and really helping people in that regard and 
creating an atmosphere of like intellectual stimulation. Like every time I've been a manager, manager, we've been focused on, you know, what is going on? Like, how do we better ourselves? Not for the sake of capitalism, but for the sake of like own intrinsic motivation and how can I use this to help other people, right? Uh, I'm always wary of like, hey, like let's do all of these things. Let's get the certificate so I can make more money and do this and do this. You don't want to get into this wheel of getting stuck in the rat race and just doing things to create more capital, uh, at least from the fiscal sense. I think it's always about helping other people. If you really do that, then I feel like the dollars will come. I feel like certain people are called to do the type of work that you do and work for social services, which is the, the career that I'm in right now. And sometimes it can feel like the financial part that we need to exist as whole human beings mm-hmm. doesn't match up with the deep necessity that there is for, for these services and also the calling that we have to be that bridge, right? So thank you for the motivation and the encouraging words because I believe it also, I need to continue to believe that because it can be difficult sometimes. Maybe I'm just uh, a sucker for punishment or something. (laughs) A glutton for punishment? (laughs) Right. I hope one day me and you don't have jobs, at least the jobs that we have now, because that would mean we have provided at least a substantial safety net for folks where you don't have to have massive homelessness. And we obviously both live in California. It's terrible. And I was reading something the other day talking about how Sacramento per capita has more homeless people than San Francisco. I'm just like, wow. Yeah, man. Hopefully as I get older, I don't get more jaded. We'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Likewise. I feel like I'm cynical enough now. Um, (laughs) But we don't lose hope. That's the thing. Everything you've said is really honest and it's not jaded and it's not cynical. The word that I thought of with what you've been sharing is this realist idea that you have it's not living in the clouds and staying in the clouds. It's having hopes, having dreams, having aspirations, but also being very grounded in what it takes to attain them. And, you know, we, we are hopeful people. We're also hardworking people because we know that both are required. Correct. I, I definitely agree. Brian, what skill do you value most in a leader? I would say, okay, wait. I got to be specific. Hard skill or soft skill? Oh, okay. You're the first interviewee, first person to ever flip that back on me. Um, <laughs> you know, I am a, I am a soft skill person. Likewise. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say soft skill. <laughs> My first inclination is to lean towards compassion for the simple fact of it's something that I'm working more on and that I really want to exude more of my life and it's also in my personal mission statement so that is the thing for me uh, just being able to see somebody and understand like man like they're going through such and such or just getting to know them better building a relationship and understanding like what makes that person tick and just seeing their humanity like so often we don't see people's humanity so just a connection and combination of like having compassion for just somebody's general humanity understanding that we're all on this huge rock having very similar experiences albeit different and that we're all here like for a reason and that we all have something to connect over thank you are there any organizations you're a part of that you'd like to share with our listeners sure i'm a part of the multicultural competency committee with the national wellness institute clearly that is a mouthful <laughs> um, 
but I've been a member since April of 2021. And I actually write for them. Wrote an article about the importance of mentorship and young men of color. Wrote an article about uh, minority stress. And recently wrote an article about the racial wealth gap and potential ways to shrink that gap. And uh, that has been really great for me to just be able to write and talk with other folks around the country because I'm the only person on the West Coast. Everybody else is on the East Coast. Also people on the committee in Switzerland, Nigeria, the UK. Let's see where else. And I think everybody else is in the stateside here, but we are scattered across the globe. And it's been a great experience just to meet and connect with people and really understand that wellness is is a holistic thing and you know it may look different from country to country city city state to state but it's very very crucial i would say that's the main organization that i'm a part of right now and if our listeners wanted to read those articles where could they find them yeah you could just go into a google search put in national wellness institute if you go to their website they'll have a little drop down you can see the three dots or three bars you can click on it and go to NWI Journal, and then my works would be in there. They span over the last year, so you might have to do a little bit digging, but they are definitely in there. I also write for MyFab Finance. Like I said, I talk about various different things in regards to financial wellness. The most recent article I talked about was prospects for new homeowners and rising interest rates. I know for millennials, uh, which I am a part of, (laughs) it is becoming increasingly more difficult to get a home and for some reason, it seems like we always get the short end of the stick with so many different things. Uh, but I wrote an article about that and some of the things that homeowners can do like moving forward as interest rates continue to rise. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, where can they reach you, Brian? I would say I've been on a social media hiatus for probably like the last year and I haven't got back on just because of how I felt <laughs> by not doing that. However, I am on LinkedIn. You can catch some articles that I posted on there as well, too. My name is Brian Mapenzi, B-R-Y-A-N-M-A-P-E-N-Z-I. Thank you, Brian. What are you most proud of? I think the fact that my academic journey has been anything but linear or the traditional route that folks say you should go, you know, go to undergrad, graduating four or five years. It took me eight years to get my bachelor's. And then I did get my master's degree after that. And there were a lot of setbacks, multiple schools coming back to the same school after I got my associates at community college because I thought I was going to do something else. It was just a roller coaster ride. There were highs and lows at many points. And it is honestly a great depiction of what life is. The ebbs and flows are and the stock market. <laughs> the ebbs and flows are always... Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a whole nother episode. I know, right? <laughs> and sometimes on those uh, ebbs, you get hammered. And sometimes, you know, when things are flowing well, right, it seems like you're on top of the world. And the idea is not getting too high or too low. Um, practicing some form of stoicism, right? Not being emotionless, but understanding that because of these ebbs and flows, right, we have to expect when life is going to throw punches and land we have to expect that we're going to have trials and tribulations and some are going to be great triumphs and because we expect it and we because we know it's coming right being able to be a little bit more prepared for those tragic and difficult things um, but also really living in the moment and enjoying the great things that happen you know sometimes we get so used to living in the negative situations that we're like okay when good things happen like when is the other shoe gonna drop right oh, we can yes. that moment and enjoy those positive moments because they are often fleeting and we really got to be where our feet are and be present. 
And what last words do you have for our listeners? First, thank you. Always great to talk to you. Always great to have the opportunity to share thoughts and feelings and just connect. Uh, and this is take two for us. And I'm glad that we got it in. I'm very, very grateful for that. I think the thing that I would tell folks is no matter what, like seriously, like just keep dreaming. I read an article the other day that really hit home for me and it talked about how having more money and more wealth didn't necessarily make more people optimistic, but being of lower socioeconomic status definitely made people more pessimistic. And obviously, you know, because it said in the research doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, but it definitely paints a picture for you of you know, how being in negative situations and being constantly like in poverty or having low incomes, like how you create like this cynical attitude, right? And I, I just want to tell anybody and everybody like to keep dreaming, like keeping that hope alive and keeping that dream that you really wanted. Keep posting those things on your nightstand or putting things next to you or writing them down, right? Because nobody can take that away. And I think there's so many things that we do have within our control. You know, we can't control what the heck is going to happen tomorrow in the world. But I can control my intention about how I approach the day. I can control what I draw my attention and focus my frame of reference on. And I can control my attitude when crap things happen or when great things happen. So I do an IAA, intention, attention, attitude practice every morning just to try and center myself because I know some days I'm not going to be able to control some of the stuff that happens. So really just trying to be grounded in that. Thank you so much for being here with us, Brian. I am so grateful to have met you through Dr. A, our dear friend, and I call her uh, a mentor as well. Thank you so much for being here with us and for sharing all of the wonderful information you shared with us today. I know that our listeners are, are going to really love this conversation. Thank you. Always a pleasure. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, is the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building better lives for the millions of Americans affected by mental illness. What started as a small group of families gathered around a kitchen table in 1979 has blossomed into the nation's leading voice on mental health. Today, NAMI is an alliance of more than 600 local affiliates and 49 state organizations who work in your community to raise awareness and provide support and education that was not previously available to those in need. Values of NAMI are hope, inclusion, empowerment, compassion, and fairness. To learn more about the National Alliance on Mental Illness, visit www.nami.org. That's N-A-M-I dot the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention was established in 1987 and is a volunteer health organization that gives those affected by suicide a nationwide community empowered by research, education, and advocacy to take action against this leading cause of death. AFSP is dedicated to saving lives and bringing hope to those affected by suicide, including those who have experienced a loss. AFSP creates a culture that's smart about mental health by engaging in the following core strategies. Funding scientific research, educating the public about mental health and suicide prevention, advocating for public policies in mental health and suicide prevention, and supporting survivors of suicide loss and those affected by suicide. 
To learn more about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, visit www.afsp.org. LPDCast is produced by me, your host, Eloy Garcia. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at LPDCast, and email your inquiries or suggestions to lpdcast at gmail.com. I hope you found value in my conversation with Brian McPenzie. Take care of yourselves, and as always, thank you for listening.